Well, good morning, Trailhead Church. We're going to be in the book of Romans today. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, the black Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, that's going to be found on page 941. Again, that is page 941. The text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. Oh, man, that was weak. Good morning, y'all. Ah, much better. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning as we continue to dig into this incredible paragraph in Romans chapter 3. We are in week 4 of a five-week series working our way through this specific paragraph, Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And, and I know for some of you, this has been challenging, okay? We've, we've spent quite a bit of time. I know these sermons have been a little more teachy than preachy. I know that they've been a little more technical than inspirational. Um, and, uh, and I get that for some of you that is challenging, but, but I want to encourage you, stick with me. Stick with me. Because the stuff that we're unpacking is ridiculously important. Like, like this paragraph is the foundation, um, really, for most of everything else that flows in Romans. Like, Almost all the rest of Romans is basically uh, exploring and explaining key ideas that are introduced right here. This, this is important stuff because it's gospel stuff. This is, in fact, the gospel itself. Now, we have looked at uh, previously our universal problem. That was, that was really Romans 1 through, through 320. And then uh, two weeks ago, we looked at that verse, all have sinned and are lacking in the glory of God. Uh, and, and we looked at our universal problem, and then we looked last week at, at God's universal solution, His one solution for all of our, our problems, right? And we looked at those two critical words, um, redemption and, and propitiation, right? And we talked about how our redemption is won for us through the price of propitiation, that Jesus bought us out of our sin. He paid the price, the ransom price of our sin by Himself, becoming the, the satisfactory substitute by himself paying the price we should pay, right? As, as Paul will tell us later, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the wage of our sin by becoming a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And, and what we saw is that salvation is absolutely free to us. It's a gift to us through grace, but it cost God more than we can imagine. Uh, we are bought and he paid the price, by becoming the satisfying sacrifice on our behalf. Today, because we've laid that groundwork, we get to talk about really the most critical word in this entire paragraph. It is the central word of the paragraph. Um, It it is used more than any other word in the paragraph. In fact, it's used seven times, and it's the word righteousness. Now, if you were looking at simply our English translations, it might be hard to pick up how often this word is used because um, it's used in both its noun and verb forms. 
And we actually have two different English words for the noun and the verb. So let me put the paragraph up on the screen behind me. And I just want you to get a glimpse of, of, of kind of the development of this idea. This key word, righteousness, is the central idea of the paragraph. Um, Dikaiosune is the, the noun, which means righteousness. Dikaio'o is the verb, uh, which we translate justify. Okay, but they're the same word. They're just the noun and the verb um, versions of, of that same original word. And the word righteousness very simply means being right, <laughs> right? It just means being right. But I want you to get there's a, a richness to this word that goes beyond simply clinical rightness. Um, so, so somebody who hasn't done something wrong is innocent, right? That's the absence of evil. Righteousness is more than innocence. Righteousness is more than just the absence of evil. It is the presence of good, if you're following me. So so righteousness isn't just that you lack sin. Righteousness means you now have accumulated rightness. Innocence is the lack of evil. Righteousness is, is earned by moving forward in obedience. We all know that we have a righteousness problem. We've looked at that already, right? That was, that was Romans 1 through 320. All have, are, 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 um, there are none righteous, no, not one. He quotes the psalmist in saying, there are none righteous, no, not one. We have a righteousness problem. We looked at this two weeks ago. All have sinned. All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. We have sinned personally, And collectively, um, we're not clothed with the glory and honor necessary to fulfill the human job description. We can't be human as we were designed to be. We can't be the stewards of all creation. Everything we create reflects our brokenness because we no longer have this crowning glory that equips us to, to do what we were created to do. All have sinned and are lacking the glory of God, right? We all know we have a righteousness problem. But what this paragraph reveals... is that God has a righteousness problem too. It's not the same as ours, but it is a righteousness problem. See, it isn't our righteousness that's on trial in this paragraph. It's God's, right? And we see that, honestly, in the conclusion. Verse 25, at the very end of this paragraph, Paul makes an astounding assertion. In verse 25, he says, it was to show, and we'll talk about this, but everything God did... In, in redemption and, and in the, the process of propitiation was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yeah, here's the central question of this paragraph. How can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? How can he justify sinners while himself staying just? How can, and remember these words are righteousness. So so how can he be righteous and declare somebody without righteousness righteous and still retain his own righteousness? This is a more complex problem than I think most of us understand. We read over this paragraph, and, and um, I think a lot of us just kind of, oh, yeah, of course, God can do whatever God wants to do. If God wants to declare me right, he can do that, right? 
And, and, and part of that, honestly, is, is based on, on our chronic problem of underestimating our sin and overestimating our goodness. Most of us kind of think of ourselves as, as yeah, all have sinned, but there's not a huge gap between me and righteousness, right? Not like those guys. Like, like there's a gap, I get it, but, but it's not as bad as, as Hitler, <laughs> right? It's not as bad as, as whoever I want to compare myself to, right? Of course God could forgive me. Most of us honestly don't feel the bite of this tension until we see God justifying someone that we refuse to see as our equal. It's when we see God justifying someone and we're like, wait, 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 not, what? Not him. Not her. Are you, no. You, how could you be just and justify that? Yeah, all have sinned and lack the glory of God. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we haven't all sinned in the same way. I'm not like that. Let me give you an illustration to kind of drive this home a little bit. On October 24th, 1935, a gangster named, or nicknamed Dutch, was shot and killed in his own restaurant. Isn't that pretty much how all gangsters die? Um, They're always sitting at the same table, which he was. He had his own table in his own restaurant, and two guys, thugs, come in, and and they've got got snub-nosed 38s, always. And and they just blow the place up, right? And and so that's exactly what happened. Um, he got shot. Um, he was in the same circle as, as some pretty well-known gangsters of the era, like, like Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel. And in fact, together, they made up this group that just became known as Murder Incorporated. Um, and it honestly sounds like it'd be a great movie. It, maybe it has been a, a great movie. I don't know. I haven't seen it if it is. But, but this is the kind of movie it'd be like I would be into. Like, yeah, this guy's bad and he's going to get killed. And, and, and along the way, you kind of see his humanity, but you also see his, and you're like, yeah, you get what you, but mm, made me sad. And right, it's like, this would be a great movie, but he'd be a horrible neighbor. You know why? Because this guy made his way by being more vicious and more violent than anyone else. That, that's how he worked his way up through the crime syndicate. This guy didn't, didn't just kill men. He mutilated them. He, he didn't just put pressure on people. He tortured people. He, he abused women. He, he, he was, and, and there were stories. I mean, there were stories. Um, and I just opted not to tell them because I'm, I'm just not going to put those images in your head. Um, this is a bad guy. Not the guy you want in your neighborhood. Not, not the guy you want as your, your neighbor. In fact, in the end, um, because Dutch made his way by being more vicious than anyone else, um, it was actually the gangsters that, um, that came against him. They decided he was, he, was, he was creating too much trouble with the public. And so they're the ones that snuffed him out. They, they're the ones that sent in the two guys, and, and they used rusted bullets specifically so that if, if the shots didn't kill him, the, po- the blood poisoning would. I mean, they, they wanted this guy dead, and so they, they shot him, and they shot his, the guys that were with him, and, uh, and, and one of the guys, uh, he hey, go call the hospital, right? He's sitting there bleeding, and the guy's name was Rosencrans. You don't need to know that, completely irrelevant, but I find it interesting. Um, 
mainly because there's a guy named Rosencrantz along with a guy named Guildenstern that are in, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, and, and then Tom Stoppard wrote an incredible play. None of you, never mind. None of you. Rosencrantz is just a really unusual name for it to show up in actual history. Anyway, so Rosencrantz went and phoned, and uh, the hospital, they took him to the hospital, and as he was laying there, he called uh, for the religious leader of the town. The guy comes, they're in a closed door, and he makes a profession of faith. And then he goes into about a week of delirium where he just says all kinds of crazy things, then he dies, and he gets buried in the church cemetery. And the people were outraged. There were widows coming to lay flowers on the graves of their husbands, and and this man had killed their husbands in horrible ways. And there's his grave right next to theirs. A cross that says, rest in peace until he comes. Now we're going to talk about the scandal of grace next week. That's not where I'm going with that this morning, because grace is scandalous. What I want to dig into this morning is the very, very simple question. How does God declare a murderer righteous and yet remain himself righteous? How can he treat the murderer and the murdered, exactly the same. How can you give them both the same reward? How can God be just and the justifier of sinners? How does God justify the con artist who takes poor people for what little money they have left and leave them homeless and destitute? How does God justify the billionaire who won't pay his employees livable wage and in fact outsources all of his his jobs to markets with child labor so that he can save pennies while he's literally making millions of dollars passively every day how does god justify pedophiles and rapists and smug condemning religious people How does God justify any of us and remain just when we've all sinned and lack the glory of God? How can a righteous God declare an unrighteous person righteous and remain himself righteous? How can God be just? if his justifying of sinners doesn't bring about true justice. I was wrestling with that this week. I was thinking about how we consider justice and how we think about it and how it's really so truncated and flawed. Like, think about, think about if Dutch had been arrested during his lifetime and, and actually convicted of, of crimes and put in jail for 50 years, and we'd be like, he received justice. Is that justice? For him to serve 50 years, is that justice or is that retribution? See, justice requires a price to be paid. But true justice needs, requires much more than simply a payment for the wrong. It needs a restoration of the right. How is that just for the widow? There's no justice there. 
There's simply retribution. Just because he suffered for the wrong doesn't mean that it has been justly set right. Now, that may be the best that we can do um, because, honestly, we don't have the power to enact genuine justice. All we can do is bring retribution. But what does it look like for a just God to justify sinners and not simply bring retribution for the wrong, but justice that makes it right? Justice requires the sinner to be held accountable, but it also requires the wrong to be set right for what has been lost to be restored. How can God be just and the justifier of sinners? Are you starting to get a taste for how complicated this question is? Just how provocative and exposing it is to the character of God. God cannot simply declare sinners just and remain himself righteous. Unless he does it in such a way that vindicates, justifies his character. This whole paragraph is an explanation of just that. This whole paragraph is a defense of the righteousness of of God, a God who gives the gift of righteousness to sinners, a God who is both just and the justifier. This, this paragraph explains a profound love, a ridiculous, profound, humbling love. But the point of this paragraph isn't to convince you how loving God is. The point of this paragraph is not to convince you to receive this profound gift of love. The point of this paragraph is to justify the character of God who offers this profound gift. It's not to try to convince you to humble yourself and receive it. It is to demonstrate to you that it is actually a manifestation of His righteous character to be just and the justifier. So I want to look at the, the seven words that are, that are used in this paragraph, kind of work our way through them to take a look at, at how this argument is developed. The first is in verse 21 at the beginning of the paragraph where, where it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. The word manifest means to be revealed, to, to be made known, something that was hidden that is now brought to the light. Um, um, this righteousness of God has now been put on display. Last week in, in verse 25, we saw that, that really curious wording that Paul uses where it says that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation in his blood. And we talked about how that was an intentional phrasing on Paul's part, this idea that, that God was displaying Jesus, that, that he put him up on that hill as a display to the world in his blood that he was, in fact, a sacrifice for our sin, that he was a propitiation. We talked about how the cross actually became the new mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and, and the Ark of the Covenant 
uh, resided in the holiest place of the temple, uh, an area of the temple that only the high priest could go into, and he could only go in once a year. And when he came in, he had to come in with, with blood for himself and for his family to atone for their sins, and then blood for the people. And, and inside the covenant, uh, the, the box, the, the Ark of the Covenant, were the broken Ten Commandments that Moses had, had brought down to the people. And above it was this symbol of the, of the perfect glory and holiness of God. And in between was this blood that brought peace. And yet they had to bring it every single year because this blood never actually atoned for the sins of the people. It never actually removed them. It, it simply, it simply um, uh, served as a pointer to the greater mercy seat, the greater sacrifice. And of course, Jesus on the cross is the perfect high priest the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator between God and man because he is both God and man. And, 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 he's, and he's human as humans were intended to be, perfectly righteous. Like not just innocent, he was that, but more than that, he had actually completely fulfilled the law. He had, he had the, amassed this wealth of righteousness. And in that place, he was the perfect high priest to come before a holy God and offer a holy sacrifice, which also was himself. He was the perfect substitute in judgment because he could offer himself for the sins of his people because he had no sins of his own. He became the substitutionary sacrifice. And high and lifted up on the bloody cross. Listen, y'all, this was a profound demonstration of God's love that should break our hearts. But what Paul is telling us is that it was a profound manifestation of God's righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed. Look down at verse 25 toward the end of our paragraph where where Paul says this was to make it known. Um, Toward the end of the paragraph here it says, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Uh, A little hint when you're studying and reading your Bible, when you see Paul or any of the New Testament authors repeat something like that, underline it, highlight it, pay attention to it. There's a reason, there's a repetition. What he's saying is this is the point. This is the central reason I am telling you this information. God did this. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation in his blood. He manifested. He put the mercy seat out in public on a bloody cross for all to see. Why? To show the righteousness of God. In relation to sins that were previously committed as well as the sins that are currently being committed. In verse 25, right, it was to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. Of course, that's talking about all the people who had sinned and died before Jesus had even lived and died, right? One of the central questions is, is how, how can somebody believe they didn't even know existed? How can somebody be, be forgiven by the propitiatory sacrifice of a man they didn't even know his name, right? And yet, God, looking at their faith, passed over their sins, didn't, didn't ignore them, didn't, didn't pretend they weren't there. He simply passed over them in divine forbearance, in patience, waiting for the permanent and perfect sacrifice to come. 
All those animal sacrifices didn't remove a thing. They were simply a placeholder pointing to the true and better sacrifice. God passed over the sins previously committed to demonstrate, he says, at at this present time, right, his righteousness. How can God justify sinners, even sinners who lived and died before Jesus came. For us to kind of understand this, I need to introduce you to one more theological word. And that's the word imputation. Imputation is one of those big $10 theological words, but it's really important. Now, it's not in our passage in Romans 3, 21 through 26, but it's all over Romans 4, right? In the next chapter we're going to get into, propitiation is used 11 times, okay? It's, it's one of the central words of the next, of the next passage. Um, and it's used right there in Romans 4, 3 where it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And you're like, yeah, Steve, I don't, what? I don't see imputation. Yeah, you do. It's counted, okay? Um, the, the word imputation is an economic term that means to credit something to someone's account. Sometimes it's translated impute. Sometimes it's translated credited or counted or reckoned, right? It was, it was credited to his account. It was imputed To his account, Abraham received the imputed righteousness, the credit, the gift of righteousness. Why? Because he believed God. They were saved in the exact same way we're saved. He he received the benefit in the exact same way we received the benefit. It was through faith, right? Now, this word, while it isn't in our paragraph, uh, definitely is in our paragraph. The word isn't, but the idea is. Um... Take a look back up at verse 22. It's that second word, righteousness, that I have underlined. um, That the righteousness of God has now been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a transaction being described here. Where I have faith in my Savior and in the promises He makes, the promises of His actions and the promises of His covenants. I receive that by faith. And when I believe God, when I receive this gift by faith, God imputes to me righteousness. Not just innocence, but all of Christ's active righteousness. I am now covered in His obedience. Right? Verse 24 says it a little bit differently. In verse 24 where it talks about justified. Um, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? Everybody has the same problem, so all need the same solution. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They are justified by his grace as a gift. Now remember, justify is that word uh, righteousness just in the verb form. It means to declare righteous. To declare right, I am justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift. Now, I've heard some people define justify in kind of a handy way. Justify means just as if I never sinned, which is a catchy way of remembering it, right? But it's not complete because justify, just as if I had never sinned, means I'm innocent. Justify means way more than that. I'm not just declared innocent. I am actually covered in in the fullness of the active obedience of Christ. 
I am covered, not just in the innocence of not doing bad, but in the complete scope of everything God has done good. I am covered, or I am declared righteous, covered in the very righteousness of God. Now, this process of Jesus taking my sin and God giving me his righteousness is called imputation, right? So, so he is credited my sin, and I am credited his righteousness. In fact, theologians call this double imputation. There we go. gets even more fun. Double imputation. Why? Because my sin is credited to Christ, and Christ's righteousness is credited to me. One of the most beautiful verses in the Scripture that demonstrates this truth is 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses. I quote it all the time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My sin is imputed, credited, counted to Jesus. And he is made to be my sin offering. And his righteousness is imputed to me. I actually become the righteousness of God in him. He became my sin, everything I did wrong, so that I could become his righteousness, not just his innocence, but everything he did right. He became what I was so that I could become what he is. Now, I want to clarify something that's going to become more clear as we continue moving through the book of Romans. In fact, Romans 6 through 8 is going to dig into this much more deeply. But when God justifies me, when he declares me righteous, it is a legal declaration and a positional reality. A legal declaration. So the gavel comes down, and and because I have faith in Christ, the God of the universe declares you are righteous. And it's a positional reality. When God looks at you, follower of Christ, you know what he sees? His own incredible righteousness smiling back at him. That's what he sees. Because you are now actually the righteousness of God. You are covered in the righteousness of God. You are declared righteous. But that doesn't mean you've been made righteous. In other words, I'm still broken. I'm still a sinner, right? All have sinned and and lack the glory of God. I still have, if you remember weeks ago, we looked at that diagram of, of how our desires lead to our choices that lead to our behaviors. I still have that broken heart that leads me to, to, to continue to pursue sin in my life. Even sin, I don't even know I'm pursuing. I still have this urge toward worldliness, this, I, this, this, this need to do life apart from humble dependence on God. I still pursue the glory of God and, and the fullness of life apart from the God who gives that glory or, or gives that fullness. I still look to the things God created to do for me what only God can do to be for me what only God can be. I still do these things, which means I am simultaneously a sinner and a saint. I am at the same time both actively still in sin, but actually declared righteous by God. I am declared righteous. But here's the cool thing. God declares us righteous, but that's not the end of the story. That's a great story right there in and of itself. But he then starts this process 
of freeing you and changing you to become what he's declared you to be. And that process is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process whereby God is freeing us from our sin and into the glory of this incredible gift of righteousness. I I become more and more like what he's already declared me to be. So, So in practice, I become more and more like what I already am in position. And what I want you to catch about this is this. Justification is a sovereign decree of God based on the saving work of Christ. And you only receive it by faith. We'll talk more about this next week, but you don't earn it. You don't earn justification. It's not a reward for you cleaning up your life. It's not a reward for you. It's not like, hey, here's an attaboy because you've become a really good religious kid. God doesn't justify you based on you cleaning up your life. He justifies you as a sovereign act of grace, a gift of love, And it is, in fact, the gift of love that actually then frees you to start changing to become what you long to be, which is what God has designed you to be, to actually start becoming, in practice, what you've already been declared to be, the very righteousness of God. Those are two separate different things, justification and sanctification. What that means is, listen, God looks at you, believer, right now. And he sees his very own righteousness looking back at him right now. And you're like, but Steve, you don't know what's going on in my heart. I I know what's going on in mine. And it's not always good. In fact, most of the time it's not. But that's not the point. It's not my righteousness for God. It's God's righteousness for me. That was won for me through the substitutionary work of Christ. Jesus took your sin and gave you God's righteousness. It now covers you, follower of Christ. Now here's the question that I think we need to wrestle with. How is this justice? He took my punishment, but is that enough to be able to declare that the just that God is still just while he's justifying sinners? How can justice be satisfied? If there's simply a punishment of sin and no more. For justice, for God to be just and to justify, he has to do more than just punish sin. He has to do more than just express his wrath toward our cosmic treason. He, he must make what was set wrong, right. He must restore what has been stolen. He must fix what is broken. He must heal what is wounded. He must raise what has been killed. For true justice to be satisfied, it is not enough that one has suffered the price of the consequences of sin. True justice requires the restoration of what has been lost. He must undo what has been done. Now, I'm still trying to get my head around this. I've been wrestling with this all week. And and, uh, there's a lot going on here. And and honestly, I'm I'm struggling to find the right words uh, to be able to convey it. Because honestly, it is something I find ridiculously beautiful. 
profoundly, profoundly humbling and freeing and beautiful. Um, I'll do my best. Here's the thing. In, in Christ's death, he took the consequence of my sin. And in his resurrection, he undid the results of my sin. There's a verse that we're going to get to at the end of Romans 4. Romans 4.25. That says, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. It's a really, really interesting way of phrasing that. He was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, Jesus died for my sin. He was my perfect substitute. And he was raised for my justification. He was raised for my righteousness. See, this seems to imply much more than imputed righteousness which is beautiful and real. Christ's righteousness has been credited to my account, has been given to me as a gift of grace. But to me, this implies something much more, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the promise that creation itself was being recreated, that something new was coming forward that would actually restore righteousness. Jesus died to pay the price of our sin. He was raised to make all things new, to bring about glorious righteousness. Now, I don't understand how all this works. I mean, the scope of this is incredible. And, and what exactly God is doing in this great, mysterious, redemptive work of the death of Christ and the resurrection, I mean, it's just, it's beyond um, fully understanding. But here's, here's what I'm taking away from this, y'all, and, and what I want you to catch Everything that's wrong is going to be set right. The resurrection of Christ tells us that all that has been set wrong has been set right. Jesus took death, the consequence of my sin. And once he had fully satisfied justice on behalf of my sin, he rose back. He reversed the effects of that death. And it was in his resurrection he secured my justification. It was in the restoring of what had been lost that he secured for me the restoration of my own righteousness. Somehow in the great mystery of this redemptive work, God is going to set right all that has been set wrong. Both what has been done to me and what has been done by me. He not only secures forgiveness. He begins the process of restoring the health and the wholeness and the vibrancy and the fullness of life that has been lost because of the violations and the sins that we have suffered and we have committed. Y'all, this is going to be better than we imagine. This is going to be better than we imagine. 
This has already been won. And the process has already been let loose in the created order through the redemption of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And we await the coming of Christ for the full manifestation of the redemptive work of Christ. And when we see that, listen to me, it will be better than you can imagine. There will not simply be a divine amnesia that sets in, that causes you to forget all that was wrong. There will come a retelling of the story that sets it all right. True justice requires a full payment for the sin and a full restoration of the suffering. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, God has accomplished both This is the very righteousness of God on display. He is just. And he is the justifier of sinners. And there is no better news ever delivered to mankind. As I wrap up, I'm going to put some verses on the screen for reflection. Um, these verses come from Revelation 21, the very end of the Bible. This beautiful passage that I've just kind of been seeing with some new eyes as I've been wrestling with this. That God is going to make His habitation once again with man. And He's going to wipe away all the tears. And He's going to take away all the pain. And He's going to remove the thorns and the thistles and and, and he's going to wash away the bitterness. You know why? Because he is making all things new. That's where we're going, y'all. That's what happens when a just God takes it upon himself to justify sinners and to make that gift available by grace as a gift to all who will receive it by faith. Let me close this word of prayer. And then we'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for this incredibly good gift. I thank you, Lord, for the profound love and humility on display in the cross of Christ. And I thank you that it is a demonstration of your righteousness. It is the manifestation of your justice that you, God, are just. And you, God, have committed yourself to justifying sinners like me. To unleash blessings we could never claim to cover us with a righteousness we could never earn. To deliver us back to the fullness and the flourishing of life. That we only get in tiny little appetizing bites in this broken world. Lord, ignite our imagination for the beauty of the world to come. Ignite our imagination for the incredible fullness of the promises in front of us. And then as we are ignited with hope for what is to come, allow us to engage what is in humility and in love. Not setting our hope on things present, but filled with hope for the things that are to come, allowing us, Lord, To find joy even in the pain. And to find hope. 
Because you are who you say you are and you have done what you've said you would do. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.